You're listening to a DM podcast. Hi everyone and welcome to the new series of Heroes and Howlers. It's me, Mikey Robbins, and my mate Paul Wilson. Hi everybody. Look, we're both still a couple of history tragics, but this season it's not just us doing the heavy lifting. That's right, Mikey. This season we've got special guests picking out their very own heroes. And howlers. <laughs> yeah, we're still on the lookout for those weird bits of history that have surreptitiously changed the course of mankind. And we're still uncovering the cock-ups, those moments of madness that have made the world what it is today. But now we've got backup. And together we'll be turning history back to front and back again. Okay, Paul. G'day Mikey, thanks folks for tuning in again and we've got another episode, two more heroes and howlers for you today. Who have we got Mike? Mate, we've got a special guest, an impresario himself, a PR genius, a man who's famous and let's be honest Max, a little infamous, <laughs> uh, a legend in the Australian uh, media uh, entertainment industry, Mr Max Marks and g'day Max. I'm sure some people hate me. Oh! <laughs> you know what, here's, here's one thing I will say before we get into it Max. One thing a lot of people don't know about Max, and let's be honest, sometimes you know you have represented people who are a little shady, but that's... <laughs> I've got a list of those. <laughs> but the other thing people don't uh, know about Max is every time I've ever been involved in a charity event, Max Markson is the first bloke to put his hand up. Right. And, and he works his bum off for a lot of really big charities in the, in the city. Yeah, so thanks for coming in today, Mike. No, thank uh, you. Th- and uh, thanks for picking a, a hero and a howler. Who have you got for us as your hero today? P.T. Barnum. Well, actually, here's the weird thing. When, it, when I told people we were having Max Markson on, and they said, who's his hero? And I went, P.T. Barnum. And they went, yeah, that'll make sense. I've always loved him. Yes. I mean, since a kid, I actually got his book, which is like 150 years old or whatever, mm. and he rewrote it every year from about 19, 1850 till when he died, about 1890. Yes, he, he kept revising it because he, he, he kept being criticised. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, obviously, it's very interesting for me because it's the first time um, in any human history that a lot of people have got some spare cash. Yeah, exactly. Rather than having to you know, work <laughs> you know, 24 hours a day, 24-7, suddenly the working classes have got a bit of spare money, We're obviously in America, but also here in Australia and in uh, in Europe. And what are they going to spend their money on? Some of it, unfortunately, is grog, uh, but a lot of it is on entertainment. And you see uh, P.T. Barnum, you know, this explosion uh, of popular entertainment, yeah. and he really does... Break the boundaries, doesn't he? Right at the same time, you've got a Buffalo Bill and mm. the Wild Indian One of my strangest extravaganzas from the uh, the Gilded Age of, of, of American entertainment was pre-organised train crashes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, seriously. <laughs> I'll, I'll talk about them in a later episode. <laughs> Let's get back to Barnum now. Now, mate, he's born in Connecticut in 1810. And he's the son of Irene and a fellow Barnum. But here's the thing. I reckon he gets hit. Well, for some he gets his name, Phineas. He also gets a lot of his character from his maternal grandfather, Phineas Taylor, mm. who was a Whig politician. It was a JP, and he ran a few lotteries. I'm, do, I'm doing air quotes <laughs> at the moment. And, uh, and Ponzi it, schemes. And in fact, one of PT Barnum's first businesses is, is running lotteries. Now, mate, I want to ask about your history because, you know, a bit of a rough and tumble background yourself. So, so you know what it's like to, you know, to, to scrape through to make a living. Look, my dad was a high diver. And, 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 and he had an aqua show, which is like an ice show, but in water with synchronized swimmers and divers. Wow. So that's how I grew up. And I went bill posting with him and putting stuff up. And I operated the spotlight when I was about six or seven years old. And I'd go in the swimming pool with the, you know, under the black lights and stuff like that, swimming around. So that was my upbringing. 
So, so you would look at someone like a, like a P.T. Barnum as being the ultimate expression of that form of show business. He started publicity. I mean, mm. that's what you know, was fantastic for him. He did read the papers and get stories in the papers. Yeah. Actually, at one point, he had 26 journalists on his payroll. <laughs> wow. And he was referred to as the Shakespeare of advertising. Mm. But here's, here's my favorite quote, and this is him talking about himself. Yeah. I am a showman by profession, and all the gilding shall make nothing else of me. Which gets back to you, mate. At the end of the day... You've always been a showman at heart. Yeah, I think I'm lucky like that. And I think, it's, you know, I, I look back to my dad, but also I really love Barnum. I think I he was just so smart. He is so smart because that's that's the great thing about Barnum. He's actually the first person to make some real money out of it. You know, and we, we talked about the, the working classes having a bit of spare money, but this guy turned it into a profession. You know, we haven't really seen since you know, probably Shakespeare's time in the Globe and the, yeah. the theatre, you hadn't seen so much um, popular entertainment taking over and bursting out all over you know, the, the Western world, at least. And he held the money till he died. And when he died, he left about four million quid, wow. four million dollars. That was in 1896 or whatever it was when he died. That's a lot of money. Well, yeah. I mean, let's not forget, you know, he wrote several books and one of them was, was it the, called The Art of Making Money, which yeah. someone obviously ripped the title off from. I, my first book... Yeah was about money as well. <laughs> yeah. It was called Show Me the Money. Right. <laughs> well, I just want to have a quick chat about how he gets the show business because at, at 19, he starts a weekly newspaper yep. called The Herald of Freedom in Danbury, Connecticut, where he gets stuck into the local church elders and has his first brush with notoriety. In fact, he gets sued for libel and ends up in prison. <laughs> <laughs> But that's the thing about Barnum, isn't it? You know, he's not just a showman. Certainly at the beginning, he's, uh, yeah, I'll call it the old portfolio career, isn't it? You know, he really has, uh, he's, he's, he hones his skills in many areas before he really launches. Maybe he's just looking for that right opportunity. I don't know. But it's, or maybe he is just one of those guys who loves to learn and loves to explore. I definitely think that yeah, learning the media at that age mm. was smart for him. And then when he starts finding weird and entertaining people to to invent you know we found somebody who was used to be the lady who looked after a former president of america yes. ah you're talking about joyce heath yeah, there no, you go no, tell no, us the joyce heath story well, well, actually, well here's the thing before we get into that because i think we've got to be upfront here he was a person of a different era <laughs> um so when you when you look at the joyce heath story there's a lot here from a modern sensibility which we all find appalling she was a blind, almost completely paralysed slave, which he bought. But then again, he actually does turn out to be a much better man later in life. We'll get to that later. But yes, he toured her well, for quite some time in the late 70s, early 80s as the 161-year-old male ex-personal nurse to George Washington. Great. And that's where he, he gets his first bit of dough. But it, and obviously, yeah, that's the first time we see oh, that this hero might yeah, have a few howler qualities as well because he wasn't afraid to embellish. Um, yeah, he wasn't afraid to push his luck. But yeah, as, as you say, Mike, you know, he had done a few things before he even got to the to the circus stage. Yeah, he made his first money. You know, you did doing the lotteries, but there's a few other things as well, weren't there? Well, his big break uh, was actually in, in New York in 1841, Max, where he buys Scudder's American Museum on the corner of Broadway yes. and Main Street. And that becomes Barnum's American Museum. These days, the idea of an impresario just tying themselves down to one venue would seem like a bad business model. But in you know, that period of time in New York, he had hundreds of thousands of people come through. And I didn't realise this. He even had a rooftop garden where you could take hot air balloon tours of New York City. <laughs> he was amazing. But it was a big gamble, wasn't it, at yeah. the time? Like he, had, he had to put a lot of money. Yeah, I think he put all his money into that one project. Had, had that fallen over 
early on, you know, that could have been the end of it. Now, when, when you talk about self-promotion, he is amazing. Now, you don't have to answer this completely, but when it comes to promoting an event, you ever gilded the Lily Max? A few times. <laughs> okay, regularly. <laughs> Daily. Because <laughs> you've got to, because that gets the angle. I always have to make up an angle that the media want to write about, and, and so that's where you go. Well, see, his first big angle was the Fiji Mermaid. Mm. Oh, great one. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that was a lovely one, that was. <laughs> Basically, he just stuck a monkey skeleton on a fish skeleton. <laughs> and, and he actually says, I don't believe in duping the public, but I believe in first attracting them and pleasing them. Let's remind ourselves that the New York Museum was drawing 400,000 visitors a year. Hmm. And in between 1842 and 1865, his shows and museums played to some 82 million people. Incredible. He pretty much invented the modern scales of the entertainment industry. When I say scales, I mean, you know, you know how, how to do it in proportion. So you probably want to hear about one of my early ones, don't you? Yes, I, that's, <laughs> I, I've been angling towards it. So I used to run a nightclub at King's Cross called The Zoo. Yeah. Like I I, and I was the head zookeeper. And every week I put a different celebrity as guest DJ. So one, one week I put out the front of my nightclub the fact that Rod Stewart live on stage right. <laughs> Rod Stewart on stage tonight yeah and somebody at uh, no, somebody at one of the radio stations yeah. which just happened to be over the road in the middle of King's Cross yeah yeah William I, Street yeah I, I know that might one. have been the ABC yeah I know one yeah. right. I used to work there the, the editor or the chief, or, or, or the journo rings up the uh, social uh, the council I think or it might have been the police anyway next thing I've got officials in the place saying you say you've got Rod Stewart on stage tonight I said absolutely I said, but he's not even in the country at the moment. And I've been getting phone calls all day. Rod yeah. Stewart's on stage. And there was one which went, beep, 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 beep. I said, where about you from? I said, oh, I'm out at Penrith. And oh, don't you bother coming in. It's not worth the schlep. Right? <laughs> but other people did. And so uh, these uh, police come, council will come in. I said, well, it is Rod Stewart on stage tonight. I said, how can? And I went out and I brought out the cardboard cutout. And I said, is this Rod Stewart? Yes or no? <laughs> on stage tonight. Because then the night comes and... Uh, the radio announcer who was said, look, I'll happily give away bananas in the zoo, but I'm not promoting your Rod Stewart thing. So I'll do it. I said, so I went on stage, said, ladies and gentlemen, give me an R, give me an O, give me a D. What's that spell, Rod? Give me an S, T. What's that spell, Rod Stewart? Ladies and gentlemen, here he is, Rod Stewart. Boom, and I opened the cardboard cut out, and they went, oh. But that was a night out. But, but see, that, that's, that's, that, that's that thing with Barnum. It's, it's that whole thing of getting them in the door. Mm. Now, we should point out here that he never actually said there's a sucker born every minute. <laughs> Everyone thinks he does. And also, too, there was a, there was a bit of highbrow to Barnum I didn't know about, so I started doing some reading for this. Yes, that's right. The opera singer? Yeah, Jenny Lind. Enormous the... money and enormous success. Enormous success. I mean, in fact, she and, and Barnum, like a lot of impresarios and talent, fought over money. But at the end of the day, they parted ways amicably, amicably, and she made a fortune. Where did she come in from? She came in from Sweden. Sweden. Mm. Yeah, was the Swedish nightingale, and he liked opera. And it was like the first major operatic tour. And here's another thing I didn't realise. He wanted to legitimise the theatre in New York. Broadway. And himself as well. Yes, exactly. Yes. <laughs> yes. More to the point. Yes, yes. Yeah. yes yeah. I dare I say it's maybe one of the reasons why you do so much charity work, Marks. No, I think <laughs> that's, you know, hosted Nelson Mandela and President Clinton's taught me yes, four times yes. and President Bush Senior and Rudy Giuliani and Al Gore and Arnold Schwarzenegger. And I put all those names up there, which is far better than a lot of the reality TV show stars I look after or whatever. But 
You know. Well, it's funny you said about politics because, of course, in many ways, that's what Barnum sets himself up for later on in life. Agreed. That's that, and that's the interesting thing. Uh, but very quickly, but while we're talking theatre, it's one of the things along the way to make you know, theatre more respectable in on Broadway. He invented the matinee. Mm. He invented the matinee, the idea that families could come in the day, not have to go through New York's smart. nightlife. Mm. And yeah, exactly, smart. Mind you, as, as someone who's worked in theatre. <laughs> Actors hate doing a matinee. That's right, he had to work twice a day. <laughs> but very clever. But yes, you, you mention um, politics. And that's what I find fascinating because it often gets overlooked. Um, he, he actually ends up becoming a, a member of Congress. That's right, yeah. So he, yeah, he's made his money. And as you say, he keeps his money. He's not daft. Um, but he, he sees that he can do a couple of things with that money. One is not just have the museum in, in New York, but start touring you know, and start taking it to the masses and get even more people um, on board, but the other one is for his personal self. Yeah, he sees that he can lose it as a launch pad. Now that uh, you know he's one of he's one of those names that everybody knows, which every politician likes, don't they? Yeah, and suddenly he can use that public recognition to his own advantage. Because yeah, we were saying before how he started with yeah touring with that slave, and he actually admitted he did own slaves as a young man. By 1854, he's opposed to the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which would have seen slavery expand. He leaves the Democrat Party. In 1965, he becomes the Republican representative for Fairfield, Connecticut, and he fought for African-American rights during the Reconstruction. And it's one of those things that people forget about Barnum, mm. was it's actually, in, yes, as a young man, some things that we would say, okay, that's, that's beyond the pale. But Dodgy. At, yeah, <laughs> but as an older man, he actually gets himself on the right path. And, and for me, that makes him such a fascinating character of 19th century politics and show business. The, you know, the way he changes as the times change. Mm. I think it's fantastic. And his uh, brain is wonderful. And he writes to – I don't know if you, ever, if you look at his book. Mm -hmm. He writes to people and he gets them to write back. There's all these – there's a, another book of his which contains all the letters mm -hmm. that he's written and people have written back to him. It's, it tells the whole tale of his stuff. Well, I was going to pick up on those letters, uh, Max, because it is interesting because he does use – a bit like celebrities do today. He does use his power – so he can write letters to anybody, and he gets these letters back mm. from the biggest people, the biggest names in the land. Yeah, and that is using that sort of celebrity uh, power to your own advantage. And as as you know, there's not necessarily anything wrong with that. Yeah, you can do, you can achieve things that you would never be able to achieve without it. Are we going to go to England with him? Yes, yes, yeah, yeah well, because he, he takes Tom Thumb on tour to England. Yes, that's fantastic. Uh, yeah. Also, he performs all over Europe. Performs for the Tsar. Yeah, in Russia, Queen Victoria. Yes. that's I think that's where the big one was. Yeah, doing Queen Victoria. Yeah, unbelievable. And that got him to everywhere royal in the whole of Europe. Yeah. And, and, and of course, from that and through the connections he makes in Europe, he gets stranger animals to bring back for his menagerie. So he's oh, yeah, always got a plan going on, which is what, which I find fascinating. But I, while we're talking politics, there's one thing which often gets overlooked. I, I found this little bon mot. Later on, he's in the uh, Connecticut Legislative Council, right, and. Well, in 1879, he brings in a bill that bans any form of contraception, ah. uh, which means up until 1965, you couldn't buy a rubber in Connecticut because of Barnum. Oh, I did not know I that. Didn't yeah, know that. He actually, yeah, he actually banned condoms. Because that's, that's the other thing about him, too. You know, we talk about him being this, you know, out-of-control businessman. You know, but he was actually very conservative. Um, did he drink much? No, he was... He, he gave the grog up, didn't he? Yeah, mm. he, he drank a little. When he comes back from Europe, you mentioned the European tour, he becomes a teetotaler. In mm. fact, he's one of the leading members of the temperance movement. And when he puts plays on in Broadway and in New York, the one play he promotes is a morality play called The Drunkard. 
Right. Which is a very strong temperance league story. Mm-hmm. And like you said, you know, he dies. He's not a mean man, but he does. Um, he, he doesn't waste his cash either. He doesn't go splashing around. Um, but he looks fortunes. Oh, did he? Yeah, because this beautiful location that he had in the middle of uh, London oh, kept, the kept on having fire, had about four or five fires. <laughs> right. And at the first, because he was worried about it. And later on, it just <laughs> came and woke him up and said, no, it's okay. He goes back to sleep. And he had, he forever, with the, when he finished up going off with Bailey, Barnum and Bailey, they'd have crashes, as you yes. about, and he'd lose animals and everything. It was, and it was devastating. But he'd, he'd just say, go back to sleep, keep going. Kept, kept going, yeah. yeah. Well, I'm glad you mentioned Bailey because yeah, we think of Barnum and Bailey. But circuses yeah. did exist before Barnum gets involved mm. with Bailey. But he changes the nature of the business again. Mm. First person to use trains to transport a theatrical act, mm. you know, which seems like common sense now. But mm. And also, too, the Three Ring Circus is actually a Barnum and Bailey. Mm. Um, I mean, see, these days we don't really see those circuses, but we're old enough to remember as kids going You don't see circuses anymore because mm. you're animals. not allowed to because yeah. they're animals and you can't possibly do that. You have to be sort of around about our age or older to remember going to a three-ring circus as a kid. Mm. The idea of three different acts going on at the same time. Very expensive. I've got to tell you that much. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> Actually, Max, have you, ever, have you ever done a circus promotion? I probably have. <laughs> you know what? At one stage, before I started promoting, when I was like 17, in uh, failed my exams and I started promoting BBC Radio and Disc Jockeys, but I really was looking at joining the circus to go on the road as advanced publicity. I thought that'd be great to learn that, yeah, because the the publicists for the circuses go go ahead a week or two in advance before the circus gets to town, and that's when they do the publicity to pre-promote, so that when the circus comes to town, they can actually sell tickets. They've got mm. public going along to it. Well, wasn't one of his great PR stunts the Brooklyn Bridge? I don't know that one. Go no, on. it's where he got uh, Jumbo the elephant and the menagerie yes. to walk across the bridge oh. before the opening to show the people of New York mm. that the bridge was safe. Oh, and guess what? My circus is coming to town. <laughs> mm. But also, Mike, you say about the trains, and I think it is, if you want to put Barnum in that historical context, you know, it is really, really interesting. It's not just that the, the working class have got some money, but you've also got things like a train network that suddenly open up all over America. Suddenly you can go from coast to coast. You know, in the old days, you wouldn't go any further than the Appalachian Mountains. And now he's exploiting all the potential, you know, this vast new world that's, that's opening up the Wild West, and he's getting everywhere. It, it, uh, what I love about him is that this idea of his tentacles. You know, he's not happy. He never stops. He's just always growing and growing. So he's the first to use trains. He's using telegraph. He's using, um, you know, the modern media, the newspapers. As someone who's been doing PR for quite some time, you're now living in a time when the media landscape is changing. Is that changing your business, like in terms of socials and all that sort of stuff? It's easier now. Really? Yeah, because there's so much media. In the past, if you got a story in The Telegraph and The Herald, it was great. If you didn't get a story in either of them, you're screwed. But now, you just put it up on social media. If you have a positive, negative story somewhere, everybody else will write the positive story because they go against that one or this one. Hmm. And social media is fantastic. You get a celebrity to post something that everybody wants to write about the celebrity posting this about. They're going to be at that event. They're going to go to do this. They're going to wear these clothes or whatever. And it sells not just locally. It can go all around the world then. Hmm. It's fantastic. I love it. So that, that's actually a parallel between you and Barnum in some respect. You're both embracing new media to, to, sell, to sell your acts. Absolutely. Absolutely. Absolutely, that's the way to do it. My favourite thing about Barnum, you know, let's face it, he, the great self-promoter, he was. I mean, it wasn't just the act, he was great at promoting himself. So much so that, yeah, he knows he's not well. Two weeks before he dies, he actually gets the local newspaper to print his obituary so he can read it. 
funny. Yeah, it's all his friends over, and they all sit around and have, obviously you know, have a cup of tea and read his obituary. And he probably got to write a bit of it himself as well, knowing him. Um, well, wouldn't you? <laughs> Take that out. Make that better. All right, folks, uh, today we are talking to PR legend Max Markson. G'day, Max. Always great to see you again, Good mate. Good to be here. Thank you. Now, we talked about your hero, P.T. Barnum, but I love who you've picked as a howler because Paul and I have actually we, – we've talked about him in previous episodes. That's it. He's, he's, he's cropped up a few times already on the show, but we haven't been able to nail him good and proper, so thank you. Uh, he's one of my personal favourite howlers as well. Max, tell us who you've got. King Henry VIII. In fact, Indeed. Henry VIII I am. I am. <laughs> Henry VIII I am. Now, here's the thing about Henry VIII, and that's interesting we sing that song because that's a lovable, jolly song. Mm. And his public persona for centuries has been, well, either as a symbol of of, you know, of the monarchy mm. or as a you know, affable, randy, old, greedy old Henry. The hunting, shooting, fishing king that he liked to yeah, portray himself as. But the guy was a serial killer. <laughs> he killed all his wives. Well, well, yeah. Not by one or two, maybe, yeah. but he did about four of them off that we know of. <laughs> but let's let, let's give a little bit of a perspective to Henry. All right, so the Henry VIII thing, the big thing about Henry VIII, of course, you know, being one of the key Tudor um, monarchs along with Elizabeth I, everyone says this is that period, the 16th century, when England becomes a nation state and it becomes properly English and solidifies and goes from being a poor country to a, the major player on the European stage. And so Henry, because of the length of his reign, um, he, he gets a lot of the credit. And that's probably why I really don't like him, because I don't think he deserves any of the credit himself. You know, if, if anything, I see him as more like sort of Boris Johnson figure, you know, he, he wants all the show, he wants all the adulation. Yeah, he's got loads of bravado, but in terms of the ideas, he doesn't he hasn't got time to do that. You know, he just wants to get the clever men to do it. And if they mess up, I'll get rid of him just like Boris <laughs> got rid of Dominic Cummins with the Brexit thing. So with Thomas Cromwell and Wolsey in the Reformation and, and with his wives, he's quite happy to use them and abuse them as long as he gets the cash because it's all about cash, in my opinion, in his reign, and, and as long as he gets a little bit of glory. Now, growing up in England as, as a kid, when, when you were taught about Henry VIII at school, was he, was he portrayed as a great king? He's always been portrayed as a great king. Mm-hmm. And, and people even to this day think of him as a great king. Mm. But when you reached out and said, you know, uh, who could you find who mm. is a howler? And I, would, I had a think, and I thought... Henry VIII is dreadful. Mm. I mean, he'd, he'd, he'd literally killed a load of his wives. Mm-hmm. He'd literally stole you know, properties that are still out there today. That mm. is. He demolished the, the religion mm. for the country because he wanted to get married to another bird. And, and he ruined all these beautiful, holy the cathedral, cathedrals mo- all over that country. Cathedral. They're dreadful. I mean, they were fantastic buildings. Mm. They were h- hundreds of years old. Some thousand years old, even in the 1600s. And while he was doing that, by destroying the monasteries, he actually robbed England of a whole generation of beer makers. <laughs> no, <laughs> seriously, the monasteries yeah. kept the recipes for beer. Of After course. Henry VIII decimates the monasteries, mm. beer almost disappears off the English table. Mm. 
But the, I think the important thing is he does he does it for cash, you know. Um, he's a blunderer, you know. He blunders through his marriages. He blunders through wars against France, you know. And he always needs to pay for it. You know, he likes these big shows like the, the, he meets Francis the First at the Field of the Cloth of Gold, and it's all this big extravaganza. Yeah, but he hasn't got the money to pay for it because when he comes to the throne, England's you know quite a poor country compared to France, compared to Spain. Spain, of course, has got all the money coming in for the yeah. New World. France has got the population and the harvest, whereas England and it is only. England at the moment because you know Scotland and Ireland are completely separate really um, England all it's got is a bit of wool <laughs> you, know, you know the weather's still rubbish you know it's raining all the time harvests are failing left right and centre so you know, he needs some money and he sees that these monasteries with all the land uh, that the papacy owns if we can make it in England make it the church of England, then suddenly all that money comes to him instead of the Pope. And I think yeah, that's his driving force. And if anyone can help him get there, whether it's Wolsey or Cromwell or Thomas More, he's quite happy to use them uh, while they're expedient. Actually, Max, you like this one. Henry had a lot of nicknames, but my favourite one you told me a while back. Was the old copper nose, that's right. Yeah, because yeah, with the, <laughs> the currency was so dodgy uh, under the Henry VIII, they said that yeah, you could scrape the silver coins and you'd find copper underneath <laughs> on, yeah, on the uh, on the, the on Classic. the portrait of Henry VIII that he put on his own coinage. Here's my thing: when it comes to PR and Henry VIII, if you set up a church. The church is going to say nice things about you. All the way through it. And that's what he did. He stole the, the religion mm. from the, the Catholics. From the Catholics and, mm. uh, and the Pope. He just owned it all. And he, it, it's, it's wrong. It's wrong for all those, all those Catholics can mm. no longer be Catholic. And he oh. killed a load of them, didn't he, as well? Well, that's it. But he also could control the church. Yeah, so Wolsey at the time was probably a big rival because he had almost as much money as the, yeah, the key cardinal um, as the king did. So by removing him, he removes... Um, any of his potential rivals and and channels all that money into his coffers um, instead. And of course, then he can appoint the next guy who's just so happy to be there will do exactly what he asked him. But, but also too, by intertwining the state and the church for centuries... It's always going to put him in a more positive light than maybe he deserved. That's, just, mm. that's my personal Yes, that's it. Well, that's it. He gets all the glory for the Reformation mm. when in actual fact, you know, religious-wise, he, he, he couldn't give tuppence when, whether they were Catholic. You know, as most of the people at the time stayed Catholic and ignored Protestantism, so Henry himself wasn't very interested in Protestantism either. And here's the other thing, too. He was a degenerate gambler. Yes. Well, we actually talked about this before. Yeah, no, he did like a gamble. He liked, liked it, loved it, and he was shocking at it. And he used to go on. <laughs> he cheated as well, didn't he? He, he? he would cheat. He would actually go on like the Tudor version of celebrity poker tournaments. <laughs> oh, it was a game like poker. Uh, and, and would quite often lose, but never pay his debt. Mm. And here's another thing, too. Well, I'm at it. He didn't write green sleeves. <laughs> so, yeah, for years we were told Henry VIII wrote, and as a little fat kid, I used to love green sleeves because that meant Mr. Whippy was coming. <laughs> oh, quick fact. You no longer hear Mr. Whippy play green sleeves. No. A lot of council in England, a lot of councils in England have banned it as noise pollution. Oh, that's a shame. And yeah. and food. He ate too much food. He did like a big dinner. And he was very fond of swan. Mm. <laughs> as in as in as in yeah, swan. He used to eat swans, yeah, rather than rather oh. than turkeys or um, or chicken, yeah. The swan or it's the royal bird. Do they taste and nice those swans? Apparently very nice. I've yeah, never eaten greasy swan. but nice. Yeah, and, and and the other one too, which is really a tough round on sensibilities, porpoise. It was quite it was quite <laughs> often on the Tudor table if you're a very porpoise. a porpoise. In fact the idea of carving a porpoise was called trenching a porpoise. Mm. Uh, don't ask me how I know that. <laughs> if you ever, I was going to ask you, how do you know that? If you ever had a dinner party and someone says, I'm about to do some trenching, leave. 
Okay, Max, I think we're all agreeing. Henry's definitely up there as a, as a big howler. But yeah, if there's one last nail you want to put in his coffin. He's a far better PR man than I am. <laughs> wow. His, his reputation is still positive in the, in the whole world's eyes. They yes. all look up at him. Yeah, no, you he know? got away with it, didn't he's he? He's got history. He's got religion. <laughs> he's just perceived as being good. And he's not. He's a bad man. And also, too, we did mention the word codpiece once. All right, folks, so there you go. Any questions, any comments, just drop us a line on all your social media, Twitter, Facebook, Insta, whichever you prefer. That's right, and always the same handle, at The Rest Is Hist. The Rest Is Hist, and you'll find all that in the show notes. And wherever you're listening, don't forget to like, subscribe, comment on whichever platform you happen to use. It's always good to get your feedback. Yes, keep it all coming, lots of fun. And lots of maps. (laughs) And lots of new guests to look forward to. Paulie, we've got guests galore, each with their very own hero and howler. And next time, we've got broadcasting legend Wendy Harmer. 